Um, it's Lent. I'm talking about Lent. Um, I don't know how many sermons have been um, preached about Lent at Rally Street. Um, maybe none. I'm not sure. Um, so it's a, with a little bit of trepidation that I approach this topic that we haven't traditionally um, talked about, made a big deal of um, at Rally Street. Uh, the reason for this is that uh, there's some vision um, that we might celebrate Lent this year as a, as a community, um, maybe celebrate's the wrong word, observe Lent. Uh, and obviously it's not going to be mandatory, I don't know how it could be, um, but it, there's going to be some sort of invitation uh, for people to observe Lent this year um, at Rally Street if you're interested. And so uh, Lent actually begins a little bit later than normal this year, it's on the 2nd of March, uh, so you've got a couple of weeks to think about it and think, am I going to um, do this weird thing if you've never done it before? I've been observing Lent, I don't know, for maybe 10 years or something. Um, I can't say I, like, nail it. I don't really know. Like, I just sort of do some stuff um, that's kind of Lenten, like um, usually sacrifice something. And uh, for me, it's usually Coke because I'm a bit of a Coke addict, um, although I'm sort of toying with maybe something different this year. And... Um, I'm kind of interested, though, like, what it's like to do as, as a church, and actually to kind of try and convince a bunch of people that you should do this. Um, I don't know how it's going to go. But, um, so let's talk about Lent and why Lent and so on. So, in 1990, a guy called Chris McCandless, uh, he sold everything he had, um, gave away all his money to charity. He'd just finished university and done really well. I guess he could have gone and got a really fancy job. He had, a, had gone to one of the, a, a really uh, prestigious university. And, uh, but he didn't do that. He just gave everything away and decided to live as a drifter. And he, and he drifted um, around the United States. And uh, in 1992, he ended up in Alaska and decided to go bush and went off into the wilderness. And um, he died. Uh, his body was eventually found in this uh, bus, abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness. He had taken a photo of himself there. Uh, they think he died from starvation and, and a combination of starvation and eating a, a poisonous seed. And he was inspired to do this uh, by another guy called Henry David Thoreau. And Henry David Thoreau is a famous American writer who similarly went to the wilderness for a few years and uh, wrote a book about it, and it's become kind of like an American classic. And uh, Thoreau wrote this while he was living in uh, a cabin in the woods by himself, by this pond. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. This has become quite a, a sort of a romantic idea in the modern Western mind that, that um, going into the wilderness is a chance to somehow face life in its purest form. Uh, it's also kind of seen as a way to face the demons. Maybe it's the demons of society, if you like. I, I think for this guy, McCandless, to get away from uh, materialism and, and consumerism that we have in this society was part of his motivation. Um, it may be to get away from the demon, personal demons, uh, or maybe it's something to do with your own community. Jesus did something a bit like this, and in his case, it really was the devil. Jesus went into the wilderness, probably not for the same sort of um, 
romantic kind of Western reasons that people occasionally do in our own culture, like Chris McCandless. But nevertheless, going into the wilderness in the Bible has a real kind of um, weight of meaning to it. It's an experience of being tested, and it's what we might call a motif in Scripture, going into the wilderness. It's not just the one and done thing. It happens a lot. But let's have a look. If you um, turn with, your, in your, with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting and important to understanding what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 4 is to pay attention to what happened before and what happened afterwards. And this is a good rule of thumb for reading anything, including uh, the Gospels. Immediately before Jesus goes off into the wilderness, he is baptized. Shortly after he goes into the wilderness, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. So that's kind of the, the, it's almost like the 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 bookends around uh, going into the wilderness. So I'll, I'll explain the significance of that in a moment. But let me just read from Matthew chapter 4. We're actually going to read the first 11 verses, even though I've only got a couple up there on the screen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live but on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Like I said, this going into the wilderness to be tested in the Bible is a, a kind of a motif. And the main kind of background that we would need to like talk about to understand this passage is Israel's experience in the wilderness. This is an important thing. I mean, the book of Numbers, which has a lot of numbers, in the Hebrew language is actually just called in the wilderness. You know, it's a big kind of um, moment in Israel's life. They had taken off into the wilderness now think about what happens. Moses leads Israel through the Red Sea, you know, the parting of the Red Sea with Pharaoh in tow. So they go through these waters. They then end up in a desert. Eventually it will be 40 years. Moses goes up onto a mountain and is given the law. So when we see Jesus being going through the waters of baptism, then going off into the wilderness for 40 years, days, and then pretty shortly afterwards going up onto a mountain and kind of giving his own law, if you like, his law 2.0, we're actually supposed to notice a resonance with what's going on in the Old Testament. It's kind of subtle for us because it's literary. It's not super literal. It's in the sense that it's not just spelled out for us. It's about paying attention to the sequence of things and the kind of poetic resonances, but it's there. 
And it's meant to evoke this experience that Israel had in the wilderness. You see, Israel, when they were in the wilderness, were tested or tempted. And they failed time and time again. Jesus, he passes through these waters of baptism, goes off into the wilderness, and he's tested. But he succeeds. So the writer of this gospel, Matthew, wants us to realize that where Israel has failed in its objectives, Jesus as the true Israelite, now kind of carrying the vocation or the job of Israel on his shoulders, actually nails it. He gets it right. He succeeds where they've failed before and is now finally able to do what Israel was always meant to do, which is bring light to the nations. That light is here and it's in the person of Jesus. And that's the significance of this wilderness experience. Easter, which is on the horizon just after Lent, that's what Lent is building up to. Lent is a 40-day period, often um, observed by some kind of fast of some sort, giving something up. It leads to Easter, and of course, Easter, specifically Easter Sunday, is a time where we really celebrate Jesus' success. This success in the wilderness, perhaps, is just a taste of that success to come. And so when we observe Lent, it's a little bit like we're going into the wilderness. Because there's a lot to get to, go through, sorry, before we get to Easter Sunday. And Lent is a little bit like, almost like enacting that out. It's almost like a mini drama that we perform in our own lives, where we're going through that period of, I don't know if I want to say testing, but it's a kind of desert experience that we voluntarily take on. I mean, it might sound a bit dramatic. We're not talking about usually anything particularly major, but it's just a giving up of something and a kind of intentional entering into a period of reflection, reflection upon our sin, a reflection upon the effects of sin in the world, a reflection on the fact that the Son of God became a human being and took that kind of suffering on himself and then ultimately conquered it. So it's a kind of, um, yeah, like I said, an, kind of an enacting of this period, this, this time of suffering before the celebration comes. So we, when we, get, when we observe Lent, we're kind of, um, we're going into the wilderness in a kind of voluntary sort of way. Now, Lent isn't something we find in the Bible. It's not like this uh, wilderness experience that Jesus had is sort of like the template for Lent or it's a direct command, or anything like that. You know, we are, in our kind of tradition of church and churches, we tend to be pretty suspicious of anything that kind of smacks of ritual. We observe something like communion, or the Lord's Supper, or whatever you want to call it, but Jesus commanded that. Lent is not something we're commanded to do. It's not in the Bible. It wasn't really established until about Uh, the mid-300s or early to mid-300s AD. So what happened was the church, it wasn't very particularly fashionable to be a Christian, and to become a Christian, it was actually quite rigorous, or at least to become sort of officially recognized as a Christian. I suppose we would say you become a Christian when you kind of have that heart change, and it happens in a moment. But but in order to be baptized and officially part of the church, um, generally you went through a period of three years of, of study including towards the end a 40-hour uh, strict fast, 
What happened is in the early 300s, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, became a Christian, made the Roman Empire officially Christian, and all of a sudden, a lot of people wanted to become Christian because it was kind of easy now. And maybe not everyone that wanted to become a Christian was all that genuine or sincere, but the fact is that the church now faced an influx of people who were wanting to convert. And so the pressure of numbers meant that the numbers of people wanting to uh, become Christians at that point meant that the church had to, had to streamline its processes a little bit. And uh, so that kind of rigorous process became much less so, and so it, that three-year process got shrunk down to 40 days of study and partial fasting, and that was really the beginning of Lent. And within 25 years, uh, it was being observed around the Christian world. So although it's not in the Bible, it is ancient, and sometimes when there's something that's been practiced a long time and has been in the church a long time, sometimes that means there's some kind of value or wisdom in it, right? So we don't have to be suspicious of everything um, from church tradition, even if it's not directly from the Bible. But I do want to be clear about this. This is not something we're commanded to do. It's just something that uh, many, many Christians for a long time have observed and found useful, so why? Why would we do it? Well, I want us to maybe think about this by thinking about a verse that comes from Genesis chapter 3 that's actually um, spoken in sort of liturgical church traditions that have been observing Lent forever. Uh, and it's this phrase. It comes from Genesis 3. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's that last line, for dust you are, and to dust you will return, that I think kind of neatly captures maybe a, a couple of reasons why it might be helpful for us to observe Lent and give it a crack at least. So, for dust you are. The Bible sometimes talks about us being dust which is a way of saying you are made of stuff. You're made of matter, atoms, molecules. Of course, the Bible doesn't use that language. That's language, that scientific language that we've come to through discoveries later on. But, but it's getting at the same idea. We're made of stuff. And I think there's kind of a, an impulse that we have sometimes to, to want to think of ourselves as more than stuff or, or well, no, we are more than stuff, but sometimes we want to kind of uh, belittle the stuffness of us, the dustiness of us. We want to forget that we are actually dust creatures. And sometimes this leads to a kind of intellectual way of engaging with our kind of formation as Christians so that we think, well, I just need to think something. I just need to know it in my head, and then I've got it. Bam. So what is the point of undergoing a kind of 40-day thing with this fasting, and it feels very ritualistic, and, and ritual we sometimes equate with kind of a, a dead kind of religion, and, and it certainly ritual can come, become that, can't it? And so we might be a bit weary of it, and we think, what's the point? I get it. I'm a sinner. There's sin in the world. Jesus came to conquer it. I get it. Why do I need to sort of act this out and sacrifice something? And what's the point? Well, part of the point is that just because we get something in our head doesn't really mean it sinks in deep. And the reason for that is because we're dust creatures. And dust creatures, well, we like things, that, uh, we respond to things that kind of uh, speak to our bodies. 
Now, immediately before Lent, the day before, so Lent always begins on a Wednesday, and immediately uh, before is the day uh, Shrove Tuesday. And Shrove Tuesday, it's interesting the way it's celebrated around the world. Um, Shrove comes from this old English word, shrive, and to be shriven uh, is to be forgiven or, or to reconcile. And so Shrove Tuesday is like, you've got something to celebrate. And uh, many places in the world, they really do celebrate. I mean, um, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is uh, French for Fat Tuesday. It's another name for Shrove Tuesday. It's a big party in places like New Orleans. Uh, Carnival in various parts of Latin America is observed, if not always on Shrove Tuesday, certainly around those few days just before Lent begins, and that's a big street party as well. And in a more sort of um, restrained, kind of English-flavoured countries like, like New Zealand, uh, we celebrate with pancakes, you know, and, it's, and it's, called, it's called Pancake Day, which is interesting, right? It's this kind of Christian celebration, and you celebrate with pancakes. But it's a good day. It's a day of celebration because, you know, um, we're forgiven. Plus, you're trying to, like, gorge yourself before you fast properly, you know, for, for Lent. That's kind of the idea behind it. Why do we then go to this kind of, you know, hard, yakka, 40-day, kind of downbeat, bummer of a period of time, when we could just sort of celebrate the fact that we're forgiven? Because aren't we already forgiven? Doesn't this almost feel a little bit like penance? Like we're trying to earn our, our forgiveness back or something like that? Well, let me just say emphatically, yes, we are already forgiven. And if this is in any way becomes penance-like, I think, chuck it out. That would be counterproductive at that point. Because this is not meant to be in any way sort of trying to earn your forgiveness or anything like that. But we are dust creatures. And in order for us to really get something deep, it helps to put our bodies through something sometimes. There's a, a famous theologian, who he's become quite famous for this kind of argument that is resonating with a lot of people. His name's Jamie Smith, James K. Smith. He says this, if the story of God and Christ is really going to capture our imaginations, it needs to get into our gut. It needs to be written on our hearts, and the way to the heart is through the body. I think we intuitively know this in some ways, because this is why I think we sing, for example. Because the truths that we sing in church, like, we know that. So what's the point of getting up and blah, blah, blah? With the, you know, it's because it, it moves us, doesn't it? And it resonates with us and it shapes us. It does something more than just the truths that, are, that we sing. Actually, by putting our body through that, it actually does something more than the, just the facts themselves can achieve. So Jamie Smith says, states of the body give rise to states of mind. We often think of it the other way around, that just get the thoughts right and then everything else, my behavior will follow. Well, that's important for sure. But sometimes the reverse could happen too. You put your body through something and it actually might actually start to shape how you think. It might be that by giving up a little something for 40 days, putting your body through that, which is not a huge ordeal by the way, but you know, it is a physical, bodily, it's a ritual if you like, might actually mean that when you get to Easter Sunday, you feel just that more, more appreciative of the grace that we have because of Jesus conquering death. Because states of the body give rise to states of mind. And that's because we are dust. We're dust creatures. That's just how we work. We're not just free-floating minds. 
we're bodies as well. So that's one reason. The other reason is the second part of this phrase, and to dust you will return. When I was uh, a seminary student, uh, what, 12 years ago was when I started, I noticed this is in the States, people walking around with these kind of black crosses on their forehead, and I didn't know what that was. I quickly realized that was Ash Wednesday. That is the first day of Lent. Just a little aside here. Ash Wednesday, uh, they take the palms from Palm Sunday the previous year, and they burn them down into ashes, and that's what they use to smear on the, the forehead. And when the pastor, priest, minister, or whoever uh, does this and puts it on the forehead, uh, the, the cross, they, use, they say that phrase, um, sorry, for um, dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's that same phrase from Genesis. And it's meant to be a reminder that we will return to dust. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I love this because this, um, I think, I came across this at a time where I didn't really accept that I was dust and I was trying to be like superhuman. And then I realized that God has compassion on me because I'm, I'm dust. And, and I often forget that I'm dust. God remembers, but we often forget. And so by entering into this kind of Lent season, it's kind of a way of reminding ourselves that we're going to return to dust. We're, we're very finite. When a human body is cremated into ashes, returning to the dust, if you like, it's only two, two to three kilos. You know, it's, we're not that significant. But we need reminders of that because we think we're, we're kind of a big deal and we often think that we're going to live forever. You know how Facebook kind of is freaky about how much it knows about you? I feel like Facebook knows that I'm secretly, like, feeling my age a bit because um, it keeps popping up with an ad for this. Is anyone else being scandalized by an ad for this? Yeah, it's me. It's just me. I'm the only one that's thinking about this stuff. Um, I'm going to die. Um, this is a Memento Mori calendar. And uh, <clears throat> Memento Mori is Latin for remember you'll die. And uh, they take this, they've got this kind of poster. You stick it up on the wall. And um, they work out like, I guess it's the average lifespan of a person in weeks. And each box represents a week. And each week that passes, you're meant to kind of color it in. And you like just look at it so you can just see your life ebbing away and remember that you'll die. And um, it's pretty morbid, but it works probably for dust creatures, right? Because it's a very visual, kind of visceral sort of thing. Um, and I'm not saying we should be morbidly preoccupied with the fact that we're going to die, but maybe there's some value in, in remembering this. And, and Lent is that. You know, it's also kind of helpful when we think about this command that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I don't think Jesus was talking about just pick some sort of arbitrary thing and just, you know, give it up. But when we do that, when we pick something from our lives that we, we do every day or that we enjoy or that is in some way life-giving, when we give it up, it's a little bit like a little death. It's a little bit like... Uh, taking up your cross, just a wee bit. It's like a little bit of practice at doing that. 
just a little bit of that dying to self, the things that I like and that give me joy, just a little bit of dying because we learn through Jesus that death ultimately gives way and paves the way to new life. So as we think about Lent and the possibility of observing it, of course, optional, you know, we might think of it as going off into the wilderness. And Christians have done this, by the way. Jesus did it, but there were, there was, it was really fashionable um, in the early church for, to go off into the wilderness and just live there by yourself. St. Anthony made this kind of cool. And um, he did it for like 20 years and became a celebrity. No, no kidding, because there were famous theologian, Athanasius, wrote a book about him, a biography at the time, and it was a bestseller. And it, it, all of a sudden, everyone was going off to the desert to do... Christian thing by themselves in the wilderness. And uh, I don't know, that doesn't appeal to me very much. I don't even think it's very missional, like not to super judge it, but like I don't think we're meant to like run away from the world. So when we talk about wilderness, I I definitely don't mean that. But you know, there's another kind of um, monasticism because St. Anthony and that kind of um, hermit life is is kind of an ancient form of monasticism. But there's another kind that is called cenobitic monasticism, which is monasticism in community. It's kind of going to the wilderness together. And I think the most formative things in my life have tended to be the communal things. I don't know why, but that's something about being a dust creature. Maybe it's something to do with more just the fact that we're made in the image of a relational God, and we are relational. But for me, the most um, formative things have been communal. I don't know, but it's kind of underrated, but actually just coming and gathering with the church every week, usually on a Sunday morning, probably one of the most formative things I've done or been forced to do and then just chosen to do and then not even thinking about it, just doing it. Because that stuff, the communal stuff, I think is really powerful. And so I'm pretty excited this year that we're going to give it a go and do it as a community or at least some of us will give it a go and, and do it that way. And I think I want to encourage you, if that's what you're going to do, to imagine yourself going off into the wilderness, but not by yourself, but with a community of people following Jesus into the wilderness, not permanently, 40 days, not running away from the world, just sacrificing just a little bit for a little bit of time to remind ourselves that we are dust. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you performed the ultimate Lent, and we don't have to do it again. We don't have to go through suffering or um, carry the weight of our sin anymore. Because of you, we are forgiven. We don't have to do anything more to earn that. But we want to be alive to that reality. We want to truly and deeply appreciate that forgiveness and that grace. And we want to be the kind of people who do take up our crosses and live as real disciples, not just as people who take uh, a ticket to somewhere else after death or something like that. We want to be people who are engaged in following you. If observing Lent is going to be helpful for any one of us here, I pray that you'd move our hearts in that direction. Um, Prepare us, regardless of whether we do this or not, just prepare us to be the kind of people who really truly are attuned to our own sin and even more attuned to the grace and the forgiveness that we have in you. And we pray that when we get to Easter, whether we've done this or not, that we really would be deeply appreciative 
and then living out of that deep gratitude. And we pray this in your name, Jesus, and in the power of your spirit. Amen.